So thank you all for, um, for coming to this event tonight. My name is Jennifer Shee Skeffington. I'm an assistant professor in social psychology at the Psychological and Behavioral Science Department at the LSE. Um, this is, of course, the opening night of the Beverage 2.0 Festival, a festival events exploring issues around the welfare state. And here, what we want to do tonight is look at the intersection between policy and social psychology um, as it relates to the 21st century welfare state. So before I introduce the theme and the speakers, you need to know the hashtags for the event, which are um, hashtag LSE Beverage and hashtag LSE Festival, to ensure your phones are all set to silent mode uh, and to know that the event will be recorded and it's hoping that a podcast will be available up online soon. So a little on the event's t theme, um, Identity and the Welfare State, Evolving Challenges for Sustaining Solidarity. It really arose from the observation that the welfare state is at heart a collective project. Um, back in 1942, when William Belridge recommended a radical expansion of social protections for all Britons, he presented it as a collective reward for the shared sacrifices of the population had made in the war years. Enhanced government supports, though expensive, gained widespread public support, in part due to the sense of social solidarity that this shared experience of war had engendered. So thus a sense of common identity, or of a collective we, underpinned people's willingness to invest in welfare provisions, just as it defined the experience of receiving such benefits. 75 years on from Beveridge, both the welfare state and the population it serves have changed dramatically. First, welfare has evolved from being provided as a universal good to being conditional on meeting income-related or behavioral criteria, with consequences for the sense of identity of those receiving welfare. Second, the UK population has become increasingly diverse, posing challenges for the notion of a shared identity that is arguably needed to underpin an expensive welfare state. Bringing together policy and social psychology, this panel will explore the identity-related consequences of these two shifts, considering lessons for the integrity and sustainability of the welfare state in the 21st century. So we'll run tonight's event in two sections, and bear with us, we've got big issues to deal with in a very small um, amount of time. Uh, so we will really only be able to touch on the issues, and hopefully this will get people thinking and debating. And unfortunately, we won't have uh, as much time as we'd like for audience questions, though I do hope to have time for one or two questions at the end. What we'll do is we'll start on one theme. We'll hear from a policy expert, then a social psychologist, and then I'll try to have a brief conversation between them, uh, and then we'll do that again for the next issue. Okay, so for our first, in our first section, we'll consider the consequences of the fact that the UK, <clears throat> in the UK, We've seen an evolution in the principle governing the provision of welfare state benefits from Beveridge's focus on universalism to a contemporary focus on conditionality. And what this means is that many government financial supports have moved from being available to all people living or working here to being available only to those who qualify for them, whether because of their income, circumstances, or because of a set of behaviours expected of them. Benefits to support the care of children, for example, which used to be offered to all parents, are now available only to those earning below a certain threshold, and now only for uh, those with a limited number of children. Other benefits come with a set of sanctions and supports designed to change their recipient's behaviour. So continued payment of unemployment benefit is now conditional on carrying out any job search tasks that are ordered by a work coach. And housing benefit can be withdrawn from recipients um, who've been found to engage in antisocial behaviour. The consequences of this shift um, is that ex the experience of engaging with government benefits system has arguably changed from one of accessing one's universal entitlement by right of residence or citizenship to that of qualifying for a benefit because one earns a low enough income or behaves in an appropriate way. 
This means that the identity of welfare recipient has changed. In a universalist system, receiving government benefits is indicative of membership of a national collective, whereas in a conditional system, accessing welfare state is an indicator of relative poverty, and one that triggers notions of deservingness that entail the monitoring and punishment of behavior. The psychological consequences of this shift in the nature of welfare for those who access it are relatively underexplored. To address this question, we're very excited to first hear from Peter Dwyer, a professor of social policy at the University of York, a world-leading expert on welfare conditionality, the topic of which formed the part of a five-year multi-site ESRC project, which he recently led. I'm going to let uh, Peter take it away in eight minutes. Okay. Um, thanks very much for, for the invitation. Um, my name, as, as, as uh, Jennifer's just said, is Peter Dwyer. I'm a professor of social policy at the University of York, and I lead the five-year sanction support and behaviour change project. Uh, which is uh, an independent academic project, six universities, as laid out on the slide. What I want to do today is just to consider some of the challenges of welfare conditionality for sustaining uh, uh, social sol solidarity. Um, eight minutes, some big ideas in very quick time. Uh, there's a lot of detail and a, not a lot of nuance that is missing, but hopefully you'll get the gist of what we're doing. So the project then, the project aims to consider both the ethics and the efficacy of welfare conditionality. So is welfare conditionality fair? Should we be arranging welfare systems according to a principle of uh, behavioural conditionality, which I'll talk about shortly? And how does this work on the ground in relation to people's rights to welfare, uh, the responsibilities and duties uh, that they may have to exhibit before they can access welfare provision? Now then, uh, aside from the usual sort of um, literature reviews, policy reviews, etc., this is very much a project that's been informed by, th by three uh, pieces of fieldwork. We have done semi-structured interviews with 54 policy stakeholders, including some senior civil servants and politicians, 27 focus groups with frontline welfare practitioners, but at the heart of the project for me is a repeat qualitative longitudinal panel study with a diverse cohort of people who are subject to welfare conditionality in their everyday lives. We've done this in, this, these interviews uh, uh, with nine groups of people um, in 11 locations in England and Scotland, and essentially we interviewed people up to three times in a two-year period to, to try and explore um, the impacts of welfare conditionality um, on their lives and behaviour in respect of work and welfare. So, that's what we've done. Um, what do we mean when we talk about welfare conditionality? Well, I think Alan Deacon sums it up nicely um, on the first quote on the slide there. And, and certainly, uh, conditionality is about conditions of conduct, as Clausen and Clegg uh, call it in their work, where behavioural requirements and constraints are imposed upon different kinds of benefit recipients through legislation or administrative guidelines. In, in sort of popular and political parlance, this has been uh, uh, rights come with certain responsibilities. Um, if we want to understand welfare conditionality, welfare conditionality is certainly about mandatory engagement with forms of support. Engagement that is backed up through, some would argue, the coercive stick of uh, benefit sanctions. And certainly in the last uh, four or five years, we saw benefit sanctions accelerate to an unprecedented high, um, and the impacts of, of, of this approach um, have been much talked about. 
you can talk about a sort of amorphous, a vague uh, idea that you need to behave responsibly, that you need to desist from um, uh, um, antisocial behaviour, forms of negative, uh, irresponsible behaviour, or we can talk about tightly specified concrete conditions uh, in which rights are linked to responsibilities. So, for example, under universal credit, you may be required to search for work for up to 35 hours a week, and you may have to search uh, for a required number of jobs, attend work-focused interviews, training, etc. If you don't, you will face a benefit sanction. And the benefit sanctions are quite harsh. Uh, uh, loss of benefit for four, four weeks for a low-level first offence, up to indefinite loss of, of right to certain benefits until compliance under universal credit rules. So then, what about the implications of uh, welfare conditionality for the 21st century uh, welfare state? Certainly, I've spent a lot of my time uh, in the last decade mapping the shift um, um, from uh, uh, a welfare state in which rights and entitlement were perhaps to the fore to what I've called creeping conditionality and moving on to ubiquitous conditionality under um, universal credit um, legislation. Um, whether you see this shift in citizenship as a distortion or a correction of social citizenship is up for grabs. But the welfare state we've got today is qualitatively very different from the one I would argue was envisaged by uh, the founders, people like Beveridge uh, and T.H. Marshall in citizenship and social class. We have certainly seen a shift from the collective to the individual, um, and this has got a number of, of implications. The key, the key point I want to stress is that we have a qualitatively different welfare state from the one that was envisaged at its inception. Although various commentators have highlighted that the link between new forms of conditionality and the founding principles of the welfare state exist, the interrelationship between social security and the social contractual obligations of individual citizens made explicit in the beverage report, has changed. Within the UK welfare system, I think it's fair to argue that welfare has become intensified, extended and applied to previously exempt groups, which are disabled people, <coughs> lone parents and under universal credit, low-paid workers. And it's also been personalised with job coaches able to use uh, a varying box of tricks to variously compel, conjole, uh, encourage individuals into the paid labour market. And if you do not do as you are instructed, you will face uh, benefit sanction. Increasingly, notions of passivity uh, have come to the fore. The notion of entitlement and welfare rights have been seen as part of the cause and not the solution to poverty. What are the implications of this shift? I think one of the key implications is we've seen a shift from the collective to the individual. Structural causes of employment and poverty, unemployment and poverty are marginalised and the causes and solutions uh, of a narrowly defined welfare dependency are firmly located at the door of individual claimants and welfare recipients. <coughs> the universal vis vision at the heart of the post-war settlement has been undermined by a view that welfare recipients are irresponsible shirkers. Um, who choose to rely on us, the workers, citizens, um, um, to provide them with welfare. This kind of narrative, this illusion that it's a them and us situation has, has taken grip 
And as John Hills has said um, here at LSE, that is an illusion. Any one of us can become ill, can become unemployed. That is part of the human uh, condition. One minute, OK. Um, <laughs> this undermines collectivism and, and universalism central uh, to Beveridge's vision. It marginalises other forms of valid social contribution, such as informal familial care work, voluntary work, etc. The right to welfare on the basis of need is undermined. Universal credit, as I've said, extends this definition of welfare uh, um, dependency to low-paid workers. It's impacts. I haven't got much, to, uh, much time to say this, but effectively, sanctions, they do not work to put people into paid employment. They do not work to move people into uh, 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 the labour market. They cause hardship, indebtedness, anxiety, stress, poverty, homelessness and, and destitution. The support that people have to sign up to, much of it, though not all of it, is of a very poor quality. And you can see uh, a couple of uh, 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 examples from the data I've chosen here. Some people manage to access good support in certain situations. The second quote under support there is, is uh, a woman on an antisocial behaviour family intervention project. But what this stuff does more than anything is it, it creates a culture of counterproductive compliance. And that quote sums this up. People become, become so scared, become identified, they start to identify with being somebody who has got to do the right thing in order to retain their uh, eligibility benefit, that this gets in the way of more meaningful uh, uh, job search and work. The job centre has, has moved from a place which maybe used to help people into employment into one where they police benefit claims. For the majority of uh, uh, welfare conditionality does not work as intended by advocates. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for a powerful start. I'm, we're just going to go straight to a social psychological perspective from Celestine Okoroji, a PhD student in the LSE at PBS department, also a Cumberland Lodge scholar and an affiliate of the International Inequalities Institute, whose award-winning research studies the notion of identity as it relates to receiving unemployment benefits. Thank yep. you. Uh, yeah, thank you all for coming today. Um, I hope everyone can hear me at the back. Um, and thank you, Jennifer, for your very kind introduction. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, especially as a PhD student, you know, getting away from my normal tea and coffee making duties. Um, uh, so I hope I can uh, share some thoughts with you. I must warn you that this is the first time I've spoken at an event like this, uh, which makes a bridge between academia and the public sphere, so I'm very nervous. Um, but I will do my best, and I hope you'll forgive me if I muddle my words. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some research I've conducted with people who are unemployed and claiming job seekers' allowance. Um, and what their experience means to them, as well as some newer research which explores how society at large, uh, politicians, national newspapers and others, uh, construct unemployed people as a group. Uh, finally, I'll try to connect those thoughts and offer some suggestions as to how we might move forward to a more solidaristic notion of the welfare state. Uh, to begin, I'd like you to think about the last time you engaged in a little bit of small talk with someone new, uh, perhaps before this event or hopefully after. Uh, what's the first substantive question you ask or that someone might ask you? Uh, well, uh, they might ask what you do for a living. Uh, what we will do in some ways is a sign. Uh, a sign of competence, of power, of value, of ethics. 
In social psychology, we often think of things like jobs, sometimes where we live, what sports teams we support, what political parties we agree with as social identities. And employment is one of the most powerful and pervasive social identities in British society, such that who a person is is mainly understood through what they do for a living. What I want to argue here today is that some social identities, like our employment status, don't just tell us who we are, but in some circumstances, they also communicate to us and others what is possible in the future. But also that social identities are in many ways constructed from the outside in rather than emanating from the inside out, as we often like to think. That is to say that who or what unemployed people are like isn't necessarily derived from what they can or can't do, but from what other people say about them. This is what social psychologists call the social representation of the group. So to explore how unemployment and unemployed people are constructed over the past year or so, I've been looking at how top politicians have described them since, the, since Job Seekers Allowance, the main benefit for unemployed people, was introduced in 1996. What I found is that the narratives today that we might consider typical, such as the idea that people claiming benefits are scroungers, are all present and have been present for some time. One interesting example, which I think is quite embedded in our understanding of unemployed people, is a phrase David Cameron used regularly, uh, that of the so-called something-for-nothing culture. Almost a decade ago at the Conservative Party conference, he announced speaking directly to people claiming unemployment benefits that, and I quote here, we will end the something-for-nothing culture. If you don't take a reasonable offer for a job, you will lose benefits. Go on doing it, you'll keep losing benefits. Stay on benefits and you have to work for them. Although it didn't start with Cameron, as Professor Dwyer has pointed out in some of his writing, Job Seekers Allowance was designed as a conditional benefit from the start. In this example, conditionality is very clearly and ominously spelled out. I've done a social psychological analysis of the assumptions underlying political discourse in, in these cases. It shows, for example, how behaviour of unemployed people in speeches such as this is made to seem somehow homogenous and predictable. Ending the something-for-nothing culture assumes that one exists. Threatening to take away benefits if people do not take jobs assumes that unemployed people regularly turn down decent employment. This kind of rhetoric builds a picture for us of a problematic group which in general remains stable. That is to say that movement in and out of the group is rare. Rare enough that a something-for-nothing culture can be formed. In this way, it becomes quite clear why attitudes towards unemployment benefits have become progressively hardened. Because the basic idea of the welfare state is that we all pay in so that in our time of need we can be supported. Taking the parts of welfare state that we don't usually discuss in these debates, free education, the NHS, pensions, we can see how we may need to use them and as such support for them is high. Partly, as Dr. Sheehy Skeffington has said, because they are universal and the right of every citizen without question. The NHS, for example, is often considered a national treasure. I think the reason why unemployment benefits are seen in a different light is because we have come to represent people who claim them as somehow bad people. Scroungers, lazy, criminal, undeserving. Whereas with other elements of the, of the welfare state, there's an understanding that even good people need to use them. People with ambition, good morals, ethics, or more simply, just people like us. This is compounded by a belief that unemployed welfare recipients are an unchanging group. Many will remember the idea of intergenerational worklessness. It would appear that there is some correlation between the universality of different elements of the welfare state and how we might think about those who make use of the provision. My PhD in the main focuses on what it means to be categorised among the bad people who claim job seekers' allowance. 
I want to share some elements of that experience with you. Firstly, when we think about what stigmatization is, one of the important aspects to consider is not just how people treat us directly, but rather how we expect to be treated by others. Or more broadly, what we think others think about us. For people who are unemployed and receiving benefit claim payments, in any context where, where your employment status is known, and I would argue there are many circumstances where it may, be, it may come to bear, you're likely to feel marginalised. One of my participants explained it in this way. They, people not receiving benefits, would probably just say, yeah, these people are scrounging off the £70 a week. They're not looking for work. I'm paying taxes. They're not. They're just taking. People feel like as if we're taking the money out of their pocket. This feeling that others see you in a wholly negative light has serious consequences for, people, for people's well-being, including depression, anxiety, and even suicide. However, for some people, inclusion in the category of unemployed benefit claimants is a worse prospect than destitution itself. Some of the people I interviewed talked of the dread they experience when, when their job centre appointments come around, and that they'd rather not receive it than have to go through the process of demonstrating their worthiness for it. I realise that to some people signing off prematurely from job seekers allowance may sound like a good thing, because it may save a small amount of money for the Treasury. But actually, we just push issues around the system. For instance, because people accrue unsustainable levels of debt, fall into rent arrears, or a host of other issues that might be picked up by other agencies. This also shows just how powerful social identities are. In social psychology, we know that social identities have powerful effects on self-esteem. When we are members of highly regarded groups, we feel good about ourselves. And as much as possible, we avoid membership of low status groups such as unemployed to protect our self-esteem and our confidence. I think we need to start thinking differently about, how, about people who are unemployed and what they're capable of. How might Job Seekers Allowance and the sanctions regime be different if we assume that the job centre was full of doctors and lawyers and nurses, academics and entrepreneurs, or even just people like us, rather than an underclass of scroungers and benefit sheets? If we've thought in that, in that way, it might not surprise people to learn that just over five years ago, I was considered long-term unemployed. I was required to go to the work program where they sat me down for hours on end, under the threat of sanction, applying for menial jobs with someone looking over my shoulder, checking that I was doing as I was told. As if, previously, I hadn't been bothering to look for work. If I can go from that place to this place, one of the most elite spaces in British society, academia, then many other long-term unemployed people can do the same, and even more. Creating space for representations of unemployed people that doesn't put limits on their future aspirations and saves a place for them inside the collective we can ensure that this conditional aspect of the welfare state doesn't erode the solidarity upon which it depends. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm just going to use a couple of minutes, maybe... Um, uh, Peter, perhaps for you to respond, you kind of nicely laid out um, some of the material consequences of being under these sanctions um, and um, the framings that are created. And what Celestine has done is talk about the psychosocial components of things in terms of identity and stigma and representation. Are these themes that you also came across in your um, large survey, um, sorry, interview data? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, de definitely. Um, the, the idea that the, well, this, this piece of data here, for example, uh, my job solely was to prove to that woman I'd applied for so many jobs. 
you know, the, the idea of searching for work had morphed into, no, my job is just to prove to the job centre plus the work programme provider that you are applying for jobs. You know, I could fill slides with data where people say, you know, I went and basically I've got a wonderful piece of data where somebody was playing with a toy car while people were sat at computers. And he say, come on, get on with your job search, etc." The actual support that we pay a lot of money for, often to big multinational companies to provide, is regularly not actually enabling anyone into the paid labour market. It, it's supporting uh, um, an industry uh, of, of, of job coaches and work programme providers. The people who are nearest the paid labour market, who fall out of uh, work, become redundant, uh, and have the ability and the contacts to get back into work, get back into work. They don't need the stick of the carrot of conditionality. Those who have got multiple vulnerabilities, dealing with difficult issues in their lives, all this kind of stuff does is drive them further down. Um, the one person who has actually said a benefit sanction did him good, one person I've found so far, actually said, I'm going to prove to those people the job centre I'm not the kind of person mm. they think I am mm. yeah and that person had tried to uh, uh, had been sanctioned because he tried to commit suicide and didn't turn up for a mm. uh, he was in hospital didn't turn up for a, a meeting um, and even he he'd imbibed this idea that somehow he wasn't a shirker he was going to go out and get work just to prove them wrong that for me is not positive it's an extreme example, or well, not yeah. positive. Um, and certainly a lot of what we're coming up against, looking at things from the perspective of the welfare recipient, doesn't mean that everybody else isn't included. The rest of everybody's involved in this experience because of the, the representations of others that are present. Mm -hmm. um, I know you've, you've looked at this, Sazdeen, in your own work. What, what hope do you think there is for changing these kinds of representations about unemployed people or about benefit recipients, mm -hmm. or for moving away from an us-them to a notion mm -hmm. of... Um, kind of insurance over the lifetime, as John Hills has discussed? Um, so I, 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 early on in, I'm still early on in my PhD, but earlier on in my PhD, I, I, I was thinking about whether or not it might be possible to change, represent, change how we think about unemployed people. But I think it, with the system as it is today, I don't think that's possible. So I would probably advocate more for a universal basic income where you kind of just take away the idea of uh, unemployed benefit claimants because there will be no such thing anymore. You kind of remove job centres, you take that all away, and you just have a universal basic income that is livable, um, and, and we kind of move forward from there. So, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Quick comment. Uh, just on that, one of the things we've got to do is get away from this idea of welfare dependency as it's been sold us. I mean, I'm a great fan of Titmus, yeah? I know we work to you. I'm not just saying that, but the, the whole idea that we are all welfare dependent that we can become unemployed, that we might become ill, yeah? It's not them and us, it's us, yeah? And it's about the collectivisation of risk. Mm -hmm. And what welfare conditionality does, I think, is individuates and focuses down on the individual and, 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 and basically makes us forget that we are all dependent on the welfare state and it meets our needs in different ways. Mm. And we've got to challenge this narrow definition of welfare dependency. You know, I'm dependent on the welfare state. I've been in hospital, yeah? If I uh, uh, 
become ill, though, because I'm a professor in, in, in a, a university. My experience of going on the sick is hugely different from somebody who uh, may be uh, in a precarious, low-paid, short-term employment. Um, but the welfare state works for me in, in pretty good ways through occupational welfare. Um, and we need to remember that there's more to it than just people on social welfare. Thank you. I think speaking of the collective and the collective uh, notions of the welfare state serving all of us is a nice transition maybe over into specifically thinking about what's the nature of the collective and, um, and how might uh, changing population dynamics affect the sustainability of the welfare state. Um, so in the second section, uh, we're going to look at these changes. Uh, in particular, as we mentioned, uh, Peter mentioned the work of LSE's John Hills, who argues quite persuasively that the dividing line between those who receive benefits and those who pay to them is illusory because most of us are moving in and out of periods of qualifying for and accessing government support. Nevertheless, public opinion um, about support for taxes that might pay for welfare state provisions seems stuck on the notion of us as givers and them as takers, certainly from a middle-class perspective. With this comes an argument from multiple social science disciplines that the solidarity needed to connect contributors and receivers depends on a notion of common identity or sameness. So we see this in a number of places. Robert Putnam has argued it from a sociological perspective that diversity um, erodes cooperativeness in society. Alessina and Glaser have argued it from economics in terms of how um, the extent to which expensive European welfare states are sustainable only because of relative homogeneity of European populations. And um, also in political psychology, um, Michael Peterson has shown how um, we'll support uh, benefits for welfare recipients only to the extent that they're seen as a member of an in-group. So if homogeneity is a key ingredient for solidarity, then support for the British welfare state should be increasingly challenged with time, as we've seen increasing diversity in the UK population. Um, just one statistic on that. Um, the percentage of the resident population of England and Wales born outside the UK has grown from 4% in 1951 to 13% in 2011, and the diversity of this foreign-born population has also increased. So people are coming from more countries than, than before. Um, another pertinent question is how population diversity intersects with increasing inequality um, to erode the common ground on which shared defense of the welfare state depends. So I'm happy to welcome to debate this question someone who's um, taken a well-known stance on it, David Goodhart, the founding editor of Prospect magazine and author of two books touching on the topic. Please do, yeah. Um, one, The British Dream, Successes and Failures for Post-War Immigration, and more recently, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, um, I, um, I rather stumbled into this subject by mistake. About 12 or 13 years ago, I wrote a, an article in um, the magazine I then edited, Prospect magazine, uh, called too diverse, question mark, which is about what is sometimes called the progressive dilemma, the tension particularly for, for people on the left, on the centre-left, or any part of the left, really, between the great, two great principles that, that the left um, um, almost defines itself by, solidarity on the one hand and diversity on the other hand. And um, I wrote a, wrote a piece in prospect in 2004 that was reprinted in The Guardian, caused an almighty row, um, and changed my life, really. Um, uh, I ended up writing this book, um, which um, um, I, haven't, I haven't looked at, actually, since I wrote it, and I was reading it and wincing slightly earlier today. Um, but um, 
I think what I, what I wrote in that, that um, essay, I would certainly stand by, broadly speaking today. Um, I mean, the argument is, is, a, is a simple one, that, that solidarity and diversity are intention because of the common sense um, principle that people are readier to share with people who they trust or who they feel some connection to or familiarity with. Um, and that I mean, our society has obviously become much more diverse in all sorts of different ways, not just ethnic diversity, which is the one that obviously people tend to focus on, but value diversity, lifestyle diversity, um, and, of course, ethnic and national backgrounds um, are now very much um, more diverse than they were in the 1940s when the modern version of the welfare state was founded. Um, the... The original idea for my essay actually came from David Willits, who you will all be familiar with, the leading conservative politician, who a couple of years before I wrote the essay had spoken at a, at a prospect round table about the future of the welfare state and welfare reform. Um, and I thought it, it would just kind of neatly sums up the argument. Um, I'm just going to read um, a section of... Um, what he argued in this round table. He said this, the basis on which you can extract large sums of money in tax and pay it out in benefits is that most people think the recipients are people like themselves, facing difficulties which they themselves could face. If values become more diverse, if lifestyles become, become more differentiated, then it becomes more difficult to sustain the legitimacy of a universal risk-pooling welfare state. People ask, why should I pay for them when they're do, doing things I wouldn't do? This is America versus Sweden. You can have a Swedish welfare state provided that you are a homogeneous society with intensely shared values. In the US, you have a very diverse individualistic society where people feel fewer obligations to fellow citizens. Progressives want diversity, but they thereby undermine part of the moral consensus on which a large welfare state rests. Now, I think that is absolutely... Um, indisputably true, although you may want to dispute it. Um, <laughs> um, but curiously enough, the welfare state has not declined um, since, either since Willits made that statement. Actually, that statement was in 1998, when Sweden was still quite a homogeneous society. It's a much less homogeneous society now, actually. Um, um, and um, but even so, I, I wrote my essay in 2004, and Britain has become a great deal more diverse even than it was then, uh, certainly in terms of uh, immigration, people from different ethnic and national backgrounds. We've had the whole East European uh, inflow after 2004-05. Um, and yet, spending on the welfare state has increased, uh, has increased substantially, and indeed in that period... Um, we've invented whole new benefits. I mean, the tax credits were just coming on stream uh, in, the, in the early 2000s. Um, welfare, as a proportion of GDP, is, is 12 13% now. As recently as the mid-70s, it was just 8%. Now, I mean, a, lot, a big chunk of that is pensions, um, but still welfare spending is on the increase, not, well, very recently, it's tailed, tailed off a bit with, with austerity, but not a huge amount. We've seen huge increases in disability. The amount, £40 billion plus spent on disability, £25 billion on housing benefit, 
um, tax credits, 30 billion. I mean, going back 20, 25 years, the numbers spent in these areas were absolutely tiny. Um, so, in that sense, that that the the the, the great divergence is not um, there is no great evidence for diversity leading to uh, a, a, a radical decline in welfare if anything quite the opposite having said that um, I think it's I think it is true that social distance has increased uh, in recent decades um, I think it will be very difficult to imagine <laughs> creating the kind of welfare state that we created um, immediately after the Second World War now. Um, and, and I think there are, um, despite that increase in um, welfare spend, I think there are trends that, um, that, will, make it, that will make it difficult in the future to continue um, the welfare spend the NHS is obviously something different. Um, um, Peter mentioned the NHS. I think that that, that is there is huge uh, support for the NHS. There is there is much less support for uh, for welfare spending, despite its rise, which is partly because of of greater diversity and and social distance, but it is also because of the changing nature of of the poor of poverty in Britain. I think. Um, the poor are less poor, um, partly because of that increase in welfare spending, um, but they are more likely to, to live somewhat separately. Um, the, you see this particularly in social housing. Social housing, going back to the 60s and 70s, social housing often, often used to uh, encompass a huge range of occupations and social classes. And in recent times, public housing has become much more... Um, focused, much more concentrated on poorer people. Um, poorer people are also much more likely to come from an ethnic minority now than would have been the case uh, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s. Um, some ethnic minority groups are extremely successful, others much less so. But overall, I think ethnic minority Brits who are classified as poor is about 35, 35 to 40% of the ethnic minority population compared to about 20% of the white majority. So again, the, the, the poor are maybe someone, somewhat, somewhat more different to you and somewhat more separate to you if you come from the majority. Um, and also, of course, the welfare state, it's the structure of the welfare state has changed enormously from a kind of risk-pooling, insurance-based system of which about two-thirds of it came from contributions as recently as the late 70s, we're now, it's now become or is seen as a means-tested safety net for poorer people. Um, and means-testing uh, was as little as a third of the welfare of the social security system in 1979, it's now about two-thirds. So, as I say, those, those trends kind of sort of reinforce the... Um, the diversity solidarity problem, I think. Um, and I think there is some evidence that, despite the higher spending, um, it'll be difficult to sustain it in the longer term um, unless one thinks... Yeah, I mean, it, it is possible to mitigate this, this tension, which, I, which I'll mention briefly. Oh, well, I won't, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, 
I mean, we have seen, as has already been mentioned, we've seen uh, the reduction in, in child benefits to children. We've seen the welfare cap introduced. One of the most popular policies on welfare ever introduced <laughs> was the welfare cap. Uh, we certainly have opinion poll evidence that there is a, a, a kind of groundswell of reluctance um, to provide social security type benefits, meaning you know, unemployment, housing benefits, etc. But it has held together so far, uh, and I think that's partly maybe the last example of the kind of progressive coalition between the liberal middle class, particularly those that uh, quite a large proportion of which work in the public sector. There is, a, there is a sort of there is a mutual interest between poorer Britons and liberal middle class Britons in sustaining quite high levels of public spending and and the even welfare spending. Um, um, and I think just the sort of sheer tenacity of the state. I mean, once benefits get established, it becomes very, very difficult to reduce them, as we've seen uh, in the last few years. Um, but I think, so I think, that, that, that I don't think the tension has disappeared at all. Um, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's not manifesting itself, the, the progressive dilemma is not manifesting itself in, in a rapid decline of the welfare state, but I think these things happen over generational time. And it may be that, that part, part of the kind of impetus, part of the sort of reluctance, part of the reaction against a much more diverse society has expressed itself in politics rather than in refusing to, um, or re reluctance to, to um, support the welfare state um, through, through the rise of, of populist political parties and so on. Um, so I, I have to stop there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, just going to get straight to our last speaker. Delighted to welcome to the NSC, uh, Xenia Chrysotiu, a professor of social and political psychology at Pantheon University in Athens, Greece. So thank you, Xenia, for traveling to London to be with us. Xenia is an expert on the psychology of identity and social, social solidarity within multicultural societies. And in addition to numerous journal articles, has published a book on the topic cultural diversity and social psychology. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here and uh, to speak about such an important issue from a social psychological point of view in front of you. Um, so why we are interested in solidarity? Uh, solidarity can refer to a relationship between many groups, intergenerational, interethnic, international, etc. And it reflects what establishes and constitutes a community the cohesion of a group in relation to the social regulations and the social context. So discussing the links that define solidarity means to investigate people's definition of the social order, in other words, the rules, the norms, and uh, the laws that define our living together as a group, as a society. Now, till recently, as you know, this world was defined by the nation-state. Nation However, uh, globalization challenges uh, the functions of the nation state in many ways, one of which is migration. And uh, migration, we can think of it uh, as something that mainly reshuffles uh, the social certification within nation states, make, allowing uh, some people to become bosses and other people being at the low social strata. Now, according to social psychology, when new and unfamiliar events occur, people need to give meaning to them. 
So within the public sphere, new elements are debated and social regulations such as globalization impact on our way of thinking and produce shared worldviews that we call uh, social representations and of course identities. Identities are socially constructed, shared and debated over and over again. Their content is not fixed and therefore we constantly need to discuss who we are, why we are together and what we do together. It is not the values that define this group. It is our common project that defines our values and identities exist because of this project. This is why, as Reicher and Hopkins says, identity entrepreneurs, people who speak publicly about identities and give content to them, use these identities to define, orient this common project. So what we need to do is to debate the common project, bearing in mind, of course, that there are issues of uh, power and status and uh, not everybody has an equal voice in this debate. Now, why we are interested in solidarity? Solidarity defines the criteria of what we believe are just and legitimate within this common project, since it brings to the forefront two related questions. How resources are distributed and who are, is the legitimate recipient of these resources? Now, in uh, the national contract that we are all familiar with, uh, recipients of resources are unquestioned. All members of the nation have an equal right to get resources, material or symbolic, albeit not on an equal basis, depending on their social class. So in our societies defined by capitalism, the criterion of distribution is supposed to be merit. But of course we know from work like Steve Wright's work that this is a token situation and has psychological consequences for individuals in terms of collective action. So the main distinction is between intellectual and manual work, and when conflict over distribution arises, it is a conflict between social classes. Now, the presence within nation states of people who cannot claim autochthony, therefore are not considered indigenous, those who are here via immigration or from ex-colonies, transform the conflict from a conflict about resources to a conflict about who deserves these resources, about the recipients of the distribution. So the conflict from material becomes a symbolic conflict of identity. I don't have the time in these eight minutes, but I have argued elsewhere that an emphasis on symbolic issues and the representation of the world in terms of cultural categories undermines looking at the reasons of inequality. So now a conflict of recognition of deserving recipients becomes a conflict between cultural groups and hides a possible conflict about equal access to resources and equal outcomes. So we need to move forward towards a new social contract, but what is the project behind? Now, according to Sterklein and his colleagues who investigated people's worldviews regarding the social order in different European countries by analyzing the European Social Survey, they found four patterns of worldviews that correspond to the adoption of different policies about welfare, and I, I guess Peter would recognize some of them uh, following his talk. One he calls moral order. People who see the world via this representation value similarity and norm conformity. They distinguish between good and bad people in terms of their behavior, and in this sense, those who deserve or not our solidarity and, and welfare. The emphasis is put on repression and conformity and not on distribution, and they value security. 
Then there is the free market representation where people value proportionality and individual contributions. This representation puts emphasis on competition, productivity, and individual performance, and they distinguish between winners and losers. The criterion of status is merit, and the prominent value is mobility. These are advocates of welfare dependency, the fact that if we help people, this will make them more dependent. Then there is the social diversity uh, uh, worldview, based on a world defined by ascribed membership and a priori distinctions between groups. People adopting this worldview distinguish between, between us and them. They value stability, and in terms of welfare, they propose to limit the benefits of migrants and of those, perhaps those from different cultural groups. Now, finally, there, is, there was the structural inequalities approach. This worldview focuses on social hierarchies and social positioning. It puts <coughs> emphasis on the distinction between dominance and dominated, and these are people from whom equality is the important value and who are advocates for more redistributed welfare policies and more universalist uh, welfare programs. Now, of course, these are all these avenues which we will choose beyond false fears. Um, of course, we are not free, uh, either as individuals or as collective, to choose because there are many constraints. But um, it is important to say that all these avenues are open to us and they lead to different policies about welfare, but also provide a different conception of our society because they consider cohesion based either on similarity, likeness, and conformity, what we could call uh, um, the mechanical solidarity of Durkheim, or on interdependence and bond of solidarity between different parties in terms of common grievances, and therefore perhaps joining in, in a fight to combat these grievances. These worldviews define different common projects and as a consequence enable different identities to enact this project. So my message today would be that social psychologically there are no barriers to adopt either conception of society and hopefully we will not wait to choose the best one after a world disaster as it happened the last time that the welfare state was <laughs> Thank you, Zinia. So one kind of <clears throat> general insight there is that um, not only the notions of who belongs and of who deserves welfare, but also notions of what the welfare system should serve in the first place are really up for grabs, and that the nature of social psychology is that we can construct notions of the collective we and of what the welfare state should be about um, ourselves. We can decide what they are and we can construct them, so they're not dependent on, on for example, ethnic homogeneity or homogeneity of any kind. But uh, that's a kind of social psychological response. Uh, um, how feasible do you think that is, um, David? It seems that the premise of your work is, is that it's less and less feasible as you have ethnic diversity. Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, we've had... A, we've had um, I mean, the, the progressive dilemma sits alongside a, a great liberalisation in British society and similar societies over recent decades. I mean, in, you know, the great... Sort of the great liberalisation on on race, uh, on gender, on sexuality, uh, and indeed the you know the, the much greater readiness you know mainstream society to, to question hierarchies. Um, but I don't think that I mean I think that still um, 
that still isn't enough to mitigate the, the fact that social distance um, makes people less reluctant to, to, to share. Now, they don't have, most people don't have a choice. I mean, because none of the major political parties have been advocating huge cuts to welfare spending. Uh, but it's clearly one of the bases of support for the Conservative Party is that it is considered tougher, it's considered tough-minded, uh, and it indeed has introduced the, uh, the conditionality that, uh, that, that Peter is protesting against. But I think actually that it's precisely that kind of toughness and conditionality that keeps the show on the road, um, along with the fact, as I say, that people, people are not given a kind of referendum vote on how much they want to spend on Social Security. When they were given a referendum vote, by the way, on Brexit, I think one of the main reasons they voted to leave the European Union was because of uh, East European immigration. And one of the things that I think people felt most upset about was the instant <coughs> access to the welfare state. Uh, and, that, and they had an opportunity there <laughs> to protest about it. Uh, it's not so much, you know, that people have a, basically a club membership view of the welfare state, and obviously pe people who are different from the ethnic majority can be members of that club, they become members of that club when they live in the society, but people who just come from another country and, and come here immediately and have access to social housing and tax credits and so on, that does, there is a huge amount of resentment against that. People don't, it's only it's quite a short period of time, so in most surveys suggest it's two or three years, People have to be in a country working before people are regarded as members of the club. Um, so I think, you know, I think you know, a, a certain sort of tough-mindedness can keep the welfare show on the road, but, they're, they're, but it is, it's running up against this, this constant tension. Um, so if the club is open, then, to there is no um, particular prejudice that can prevent someone being a part of the club. The only um, requirement is that you're going to contribute. So the only requirement is fairness there from that point of view. That kind of brings together the two themes. Um, does that satisfy the requirements, Senia, I mean, for um, a welfare state in terms of um, that's based on, on a collective and solidarity, that there not be cheaters, that people aren't taking without receiving, um, if there are no other barriers in terms of class or in terms of um, ethnic identity? Well, let me say first uh, um, something that comes from this discussion. Um, first, uh, I could question the premise that people uh, are solidarity only with their kin. The example I will give is family. We all have to learn to do that. Otherwise, we don't want to share our toys with our uh, siblings, and we don't want to share our parents. It doesn't come naturally. It's something we learn. <laughs> uh, secondly, um, uh, I don't think, I don't know whether people in the 50s were more keen to share because they were less diverse. I think that they were more keen to share because they had a common project behind them, which was the war. Mm. And so they felt that they had a common experience and a common grievance and something to go um, forward. So, uh, of course, a, a common identity should be there if we know what the project is. And Actually, we don't know what the project is right now. And this is true for nation states and for the European Union as well. That's why we have these problems. Third thing I want to say is that social categories um, are like any other category, and our cognitive system can uh, do categories on similarity and on interdependence. Example, similarity could be uh, my socks, um, and, 
and uh, I don't know, cutlery or forest is an interdependent category, and we can do both in, in a very good way. So what happens with social representations is what they tell you is to be able to communicate with each other, we, are, we have to form these worldviews, and these worldviews are um, informed by social regulations. So they, there is much to do with institutional agreements and uh, media and how we talk about these things that people form their own views. And they are not formed one day um, they wake up and, and they have this idea. Now, so to finish my question, to finish on the members of the club, I would say that this is, this is something that um, if we fund a common project, we will see who are the members of the club. Just to give you an example, here in Britain there are 2,500 doctors that came from Greece during the crisis. Are they members of the club or not? Do they contribute? 4.4 billion are for, um, uh, produced from in the healthcare system in Britain from people from abroad that came here. We would like to have them in Greece, but we cannot keep them. <laughs> but we form them, so we invest in these people. If we, I mean, solidarity in terms of Europe, for example, it's also, a, a, I think, you have to see where your identity goes and how they include other people in different layers to find the members of the club. Thank you. Um, I'm very sorry that we won't uh, have time to open to questions. Um, I, I hope we've... Um, convinced you that um, these kind of social psychological dynamics are both informing our notion of what the welfare state should be achieving in the first place and then um, relevant to the consequences of the way in which the welfare state is turning out and the way in which um, the UK population is turning out. Do continue to stay the conversation. We just have to close this specific event right now. And I'll do so by thanking you all and by thanking Xenia, David, um, Celestine and Peter and urging you all to stick around.